Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heather, for reading that passage for us. We are in this sermon series this summer on the parables of Jesus. And uh, it, it's, I've noticed that there have been several times in the last month or so where, where our sermons uh, and texts that we've been working through have had to do with wealth and money. It's been a topic that, is, that has come up. Uh, it's, it's not been an intentional thing necessarily, but, but it's, it's been a theme that I've noticed. But one of the things that we, we remember when we, when we particularly hear Jesus talking about wealth is that he's always talking about more than just money. Uh, he's really talking about what are the things that we look to for security? What are the things that we rely on? And, um, and so I'm excited to, to unpack this. But before we do, I, I got to tell you a little bit about my morning so far. Uh, it's important. It, it applies. Um, it, you're looking at a guy who loves, loves a good routine. I love a routine. Um, I, in fact, I, I, my Sunday morning routine, it's, you could put it up against any Major League Baseball pitcher, and I would just tell you that they've got nothing on what I've been doing for 20 years. And what I've been doing for 20 years is getting up at an early, early hour. Uh, I will usually go for a walk about four miles. And I say usually, listen, this is what I do. I do it every time. Go from walk, it's about four miles. I get back, get cleaned up, leave the house, go to Starbucks, and I get a triple grande mocha every Sunday for 20 years. I'm a bit of an expert in Starbucks raising their prices. Because I've watched it happen in real time. They should, they should hire me as a consultant to give a customer experience report on their gradual increase in price on the Triple Grande Mocha. Because I know a little something about this. Because that's what I do. And then I get here and I arrive at this place or when it was at the hotel at the hotel or when it was with the, at the other church at the den, when I was in Kansas City. Same thing. I get there, I'm the first one there, I'm the only one there. I turn on the lights, print out a copy of my sermon, I come and I stand right here, this pulpit that I'm standing in right now, and sometime around 6, 6.15, I deliver my sermon to an empty room, and I have a pencil in my hand, just like this one, actually this one, <laughs> and I make little notes, I make 
last minute edits, I underline words, I figure out the rhythm of the sermon, I deliver it, I go back, I finish it up on the laptop, print out nine copies. There are nine people who receive copies of this sermon. And then at seven, people start to arrive and the lights are all on in the building and Corey and Becca show up, turn on the sound system, our team shows up, coffee's getting brewed, setup team is here. It's all happening. Many of you know that kind of seven o'clock is when this place starts to come to life. But I've usually been here for an hour or an hour and a half prior to that here, just preparing and taking time. It's glorious and I love it. I love that routine. This morning at seven, I opened my eyes for the first time. (laughs) I didn't know what day it was. I was so confused and I panicked and I was out the door in 12 minutes. Threw some water on my hair, made myself look as presentable as I could because I was behind and the world was burning and I couldn't handle it. And I got here, I didn't even stop at Starbucks this morning. I I ruined a streak. I didn't stop at Starbucks. I got here, somebody had parked in my spot already. I'm not saying who it was, but it was one of you. (laughs) And my routine was just off. And I love a routine. I love predictability. I love to know what's gonna happen. I love to be in a frame of mind. And today, on the day when we talk about the parable of the rich fool, the Lord in his infinite kindness said to me, not today, Ramsey. You don't get to have that routine today. I'm going to interrupt it for you because it will help you, I promise. How does it help me? Here's how it helps me. There are certain things that we look at to give us peace. There are certain things that we look at to give us predictability, stability, and I love the, for me, it's the luxury of a routine. It's the luxury of knowing that my day is going to unfold in a certain kind of way, and I'm gonna be the chillest person here in the room because my morning is unfolded in such a predictable way that I know how it's going to go. At the 8.30 service, when I stood up to preach my sermon, I had not rehearsed it. You all are lucky because I have now. (laughs) I'm kidding about that. But this parable is about somebody who is looking at Jesus and saying, there's something I need and I'd like you to give it to me that will make it so that I can relax and I can be at ease and I can be at peace in this world. And what it is that I want you to give me is the portion of my inheritance that my brother will not let go of. So give me that. I remember being in grade school and watching George C. Scott's play, uh, watching George C. Scott play the role of Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. Maybe you've seen this, we know the story. Um, But there's a point in in that film when Scrooge's employees are working late and it's close to Christmas and they're cold. And Bob Cratchit asks if they could have another lump of coal to stoke the fire. And when he did, 
Scrooge acted as though this employee of his was trying to send him into financial ruin. That's the guilt that he put on him. And it raises the question, what is it that has to transpire in a person's life that would lead them to value a lump of coal over a fellow human being? How do we get there? And when we look at Scrooge's life, you start to see how he got there. You learn that he grew up an orphan. What Dickens character didn't grow up an orphan, right? But he grew up an orphan with this enormous drive to make something out of himself. And it came at a great cost. And the cost was placing his own wealth and his own success over everything else. He even walked away from the woman that he would have married in order to follow after this sense of security. And our lives aren't that different, at least in how they could play out. Because every day, you and I are faced with choices. And the business of choosing is one where we always have to choose one thing at the expense of another. That's the whole point of making a choice, right? And so you choose to live in one city, which means you don't live in that other city. You choose something to major in in college or in a town of overachievers like ours, you choose two things to major in in college. But they come at the expense of other things that you could have majored in in college. And so often we feel the loss of the choices we make, the things that we can't have now. And it can lead us to a place where we feel bitter and we feel hurt and maybe even a little indignant that we should be able to have everything. But these choices that we make every day with our lives, they shape us into the people that we're becoming. There's a philosopher named Iris Murdoch who said this, at those crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. And so upon what basis do we make the choices we make? Unto what end do we choose things? This parable is asking us, it's begging the question, what are we becoming right now? I love looking at the parables of Jesus and asking the question, why did he tell this parable? What, what was the setup? What was the reason why Jesus went into this story? And it's usually very revealing and really helps you understand why he's telling the story in the first place. This parable is told because a man comes up to him and asks him to do something that people would ask rabbis to do in Jesus' day, and that would be to settle disputes. If there's a dispute between two people, you could turn to a rabbi and you would say, settle this for us. And so here you have somebody coming to Jesus, a man who is uh, presumably a younger brother who has an older brother who may or may not be with him in the parable we don't, we, or in, the, in, this, in this passage. We don't know if he's standing right next to him or if, Jesus is, or if he's asking Jesus to come with him to do something. But, he's, but he, says, he says, I have a brother. He's inherited the family's estate and he will not share it with me. And the jilted man is wanting Jesus to intervene on his behalf. Rabbi, tell him. Tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus refuses. He refuses to arbitrate this. And instead what he does is he issues a warning to the man. And he says to him, you be careful. 
be careful now because these are the kinds of things where you're in the process of becoming who you are. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're, right now what you're thinking is you're thinking that if you get some of this money, if you get a share of this money, it will be to your advantage. But what if it isn't? What if it just ends up costing you instead? Because what you're asking comes at a cost. Part of what Jesus is teaching here is a lesson in contentment. There's an old Puritan named John Owen who said this about contentment. I love this. He says, contentment makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. Contentment makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. After Jesus tells the man, be careful, don't let greed rule you, that's when he tells the story. And what he does is he tells the story of a man who is doing well. He's doing very, very well. So well that he has a nice problem. You ever have anybody say that to you? Well, that's a nice problem to have. Every time somebody says that to me, I want to say, yeah, it's still a problem. It's still a problem. I know it's a nice problem, fine. But it's still <laughs> a problem. And his problem is this. He just has too much stuff. And it's all valuable. He just has too much stuff. It's all valuable. He doesn't know where to put it. He just doesn't have it. He's run out of room. And so he makes this solution. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear down my existing barns. Those old things, they're obsolete. I'm going to tear them down. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to build bigger ones and better ones. And then I'm going to fill them. I'm going to fill them with crops. I'm going to fill them with stuff. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it easy after that. I'm going to enjoy my wealth. I'm going to kick back and I'm going to relax. Treat myself to some food and some drink that I have deprived myself of because I've been working so hard to finally get here. And so Jesus is painting this picture, right, of a man who believes that the world now belongs to him. It's his world. We're all just living in it. And as he tells the story of what he's going to do, the man in the parable, he uses so many personal pronouns that you would think there's nobody in the world but him. He even says to his own soul. What are the areas in your life where you think primarily in terms of it's my world and everybody else is just living in it? Is it this need to achieve where the people around you exist to help prop you up, but other than that, they're, they're, they're kind of in the way if they're not working toward that goal. Are we ever really alone in those areas where, where we feel an, a need for help? Or is it possible that there are others in your world who could be of great help if you just see them and not be so focused on just nailing things down for yourself? Jesus tells the man here, he says, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. The billionaire Ted Turner famously said that uh, Christianity was for losers. But he also said, he said this, he said, uh, 
These new super rich won't loosen their wads because they're afraid they'll reduce their net worth and go down on the list. That's their Super Bowl. My hands shook when I signed the papers for charitable gifts because I knew I was taking myself out of the running for the richest man in America. Christianity is for losers also. If I give my money away, my hand trembles at the thought of not being the richest man in America, which is itself a kind of poverty, isn't it? What is the harvest that you want? What is the harvest you desire? That's the point of this parable. What kinds of barns would you like to build and what would you like them to hold? There's nothing inherently evil about money. There's nothing inherently evil even about riches. But there often is something very evil in the way we regard wealth, in the way we regard money. Jesus didn't say money is the root of all evil. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money can be a powerful tool used for beautiful things can also easily become the goal and the focus of life. And if it's not money, then what is it for you? What is the currency you're after? What is it that you want to build barns to hold? Is it a reputation? Is it, a, is it the admiration of others? Is it relationships? Some external appearance of piety? Control and predictability? When you open your eyes at seven and you're already way behind, This parable is illustrating the deceitfulness, really, of riches, showing that they can give you a false sense of security. They can fill your thoughts and dreams and visions, but they can really also, at the same time, stifle the revolutionary work of Jesus in your life. The philosopher Seneca said it this way. He said, the longer a man extends his colonnades, the higher he lifts his towers, the wider he stretches out his mansions, so much more will there be to hide heaven from his sight. If you seek after riches, whether tangible or intangible, for the sake of building up your identity and saying, this is what I want to be known by, this is what I want to be known for, the theologian and commentator Daryl Bach said this, many of us end up serving our dollars and bowing to their demands rather than relating sensitively to people. False worship involves bowing down to something that is not worthy of honor and cannot deliver life's true meaning. This man is asking Jesus to arbitrate what the man, let me say it better. The man asking Jesus to arbitrate here has heaven hidden from his sight. And when this happens, all that he was created to be becomes hidden as well to the point that this brother is more concerned with getting his money than he is with relating lovingly to his sibling. Because what he's saying to Jesus is in effect, would you help me fracture my relationship with my brother so that I could obtain money? What have we become? Because it's never enough, right? Nelson Rockefeller, when he was asked what it takes to make a man happy, he said just a little bit more. And I think Jesus intends a bit of irony 
in this parable. And the irony is this, that the man says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Here's the irony. Is that what's going to happen? Is that ever how it happens? Do you, you're all shaking your heads. No, thank you. I love the responsiveness of this because we know this isn't how it works, right? You don't get to a point where you say, I have enough, I'm going to kick back and take it easy. That's not how this goes. This man isn't even being honest with himself in the parable. He says he's going to build these big barns and it's going to make it so that he can kick back and relax, but that is never how it works. We may be tempted to reduce Jesus' warnings down to just being against the pursuit of wealth and words of caution that keep us from becoming snooty and unlikable. But what if there's more to it? What if the point is he's saying, there's never an end to this? You will never be satisfied. Because those big new barns you build and fill, will at some point, if things keep going this way for you, you will look at them as those old barns that don't work. And you'll tear them down. Why? Because you've just given yourself away again to getting more and more, and it never ends. And you'll die in this life of despair because you tried to have everything in the world and you just couldn't seem to find it. When Jesus tells a parable, he's always talking about more than just the situation, right? So of course, this parable is about more than grain and barns and wealth. Jesus is talking about an age to come, a coming kingdom, the kingdom of Christ that is real, that's lasting, that's true, that's rich. And this parable, what it's doing is it's showing that seeking wealth for purely self-centered reasons is incompatible with that kingdom. And it's incompatible with the call on our lives to live our lives before the Lord. Why is it incompatible? Well, the first reason it's incompatible is because earthly riches fade. That's just a fact. And the second reason it's incompatible is no accumulation of wealth or power in this life will preclude any of us from having to reckon with God at some point. That's coming. It's coming for all of us. But for the believer in Christ, we're told in the verses that follow this parable, so the very next section of Luke, what we're told here is that Jesus himself goes and he prepares a place for us in glory, and we're his. He knows our needs. He knows the details of our lives better than we do, and he gives us everything that we need. And so that means in this life, we steward a lot of things. But the greatest thing that we steward, the most valuable gift that we steward in this life is our life itself. That I'm a steward of my own life. And I don't live it to get rich. Because Jesus says, even if you become rich, you really should be rich toward God. Seeking his kingdom doing this by holding things with an open hand, by giving, by storing up your treasure in heaven. Steward what you have here. But don't think that you can keep it because his kingdom is the only one that will last. And this parable ends with a very understated grace that's powerful to consider. I want to read you the verse that I'm thinking of. It's verse 20. This is the understated grace of this parable. But God said to him, to the man who builds the barns and fills them, God said to him, you fool, 
this night your very life will be demanded from you. There's grace in that. You may wonder, (laughs) how is there grace in God calling somebody a fool? Well, let's consider for a minute the storyteller. Who it is that's telling this story? It's Jesus Christ. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son of God incarnate, having taken on flesh for the purpose of living and dying in our place to reconcile us to our Creator, to bring us into His glory forever. And when He says the part about the rich fool's life being demanded of Him, He's addressing a reality that extends beyond the rich fool. It's a reality that extends to every single one of us. And that is this, at some point your life will be demanded of you. Where's the gospel in that? Your life has an author. The life that you're trying to figure out how to manage, nail down, make sure it has enough, that life has an author. And it's not you. Psalm 139, 16 tells us, the Lord has numbered your days before a single one of them has come to pass. Meaning, there will be a day that he already knows when this life that you're living, he will take. And if we could pull back a bit and see from a wider angle. Jesus is there and he's walking down that road and he's in the company of that man who feels he has been jilted by his brother. He's there because the Lord in his mercy took on flesh to live a perfect life in our place, to die a sinner's death in our place, to give us life in his name by defeating the power of the grave for us, to robe us in his righteousness when our faith is in him. That is why Jesus was there on that road on that day. And the man who addresses Jesus is saying, teacher, this world isn't fair. Make it fair. Give me what's mine. He's asking Jesus to intervene, but he's doing so from the perspective that this life is all that there is and what he can amass here is the ultimate goal. And even though Jesus responds to him with this parable that basically says you can't take any of this with you and you're a fool if you think you can amass anything here that will last, the reason, the reason that none of this world's wealth will last is not because You're just going to die one day and leave this place. It's because where we go when we leave here operates on a different economy. The currency will be no good because it'll be a place where every need that we have has been met with perfect justice. And that's the mission of Jesus, even as he's talking to this man, to give us all we need to be where we were meant to be for all eternity. And so when he sees the man call out, asking him to settle this dispute that he has with his brother, he tells this story about what happens when we look to wealth in this world to be our lasting hope. 
even if we wildly succeed, you're still going to be separated from it. All that material wealth because your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Guard yourself against that thinking. Instead, think as one who knows your life will carry on beyond this place. At some point, this life that you're living right now will be demanded of you by the author of it. Here's where it gets good. In the case of this parable, the Lord is coming for the life of a fool, but he comes for the lives of believers too. And what does he come to give us? An inheritance. An inheritance in his kingdom, which is and shall remain established forever, where God himself will be the greatest treasure that we'll ever know. In this world where we're trying to secure an inheritance and build wealth, we're just going to have our lives demanded of us. And when our faith is in Christ, what we will be given then is an inheritance that will satisfy our souls forever. And here's the hope of the gospel from our Lord. It isn't just that the Lord demands the lives of fools. It's that he comes for all of us. And he judges us all in perfect righteousness. And when he judges those whose faith is in Jesus, all he sees is the record of Christ's righteousness on us. And our reward then will be the provision of all we need for an eternity of perfect face-to-face relationship with the maker and the lover of our soul. And so may he lift our eyes to see it. May he lift our eyes to see that our provision rests in so much more than the things we quibble over here. And may we hear it as good news when our Lord says to you, your life here will be demanded of you because we have an author. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you came to redeem we who struggle and fight to try to find as much security as we can in this world. It reveals such a fear in us that everything is fragile, that nothing is sacred, nothing is secure, uh, that it's up to us to figure everything out and to hold it all down, to accumulate so that we actually can feel like we have security. Lord, thank you for telling stories about it, for exposing this part of our hearts, this part of our minds, this part of our faith. And Lord, would you make us to be people who marvel with wonder at the idea that every single one of our days have been known by you before a single one of them has come to be. It means that there are things coming for us that we can't know, but that you know full well, everything.
And so, Father, help us to trust you with that. Teach us what it means to be rich toward you in this life and how we care for one another, how we steward the resources, how we steward our time. Uh, Lord, teach us how to love you well and to serve others well in your name and trust you for the outcome. Help us to become that kind of people, Uh, people who are open-handed rather than tight-fisted. Help us to see people as more valuable than things and help us to see ourselves, our own lives, as more precious to you than the birds and the flowers of the field and to know that you love us with a deep, unchanging love. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.